passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, and for the rest of us, we will um, be finishing up our series in Jude this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Jude 24 and 25. That's what we'll be this morning. Um, and these two verses uh, are without a doubt probably the, the most um, well-known verses of the book of Jude um, for years, actually, here on Sunday mornings at Crosswinds. We've actually used these uh, two verses as a way to close our services because they're, um, they're just a, a really powerful way to remind us of the assurance that we have in Christ Jesus as well as the charge that we have been given as the people of God as we go out um, into our vocations um, each and every week. And, and as beautiful as they are on their own, they're actually... I think even more beautiful, more powerful, when we consider the journey that we've been on in the book of Jude, that Jude has been leading people through. And Jude begins his letter, and he's talking about how he's, uh, he even says in verse 3 that I was very eager to write to you about our shared salvation, our common salvation. And yet before he could actually pen that letter, he, he becomes aware of these challenges, these dangers, that he's, he's, these problems that are in the church that he's writing to. And, and there are these people that are taking this gospel, this beautiful salvation, this common salvation that he wanted to write about, and they're actually using it as, a, as an excuse to do whatever they wanted. And, and they actually use this refrain that's been a part of, of one of the problems the church has faced from the very beginning, for millennia. They basically said, hey, if grace is free, then that means I can do whatever I want to do. Or to put it in language that we probably hear today a lot is, well, nobody is perfect and I know that's wrong, but God is going to forgive me anyway. And these people were promising this freedom and yet, really, what they're actually offering to people is just another form of slavery. And so Jude takes this strong, sharp right turn as he's writing this letter from his original plan, and he spends the bulk of his letter telling the church and telling us today that we have to preserve the truth. This gospel that has been entrusted to us, we have to contend for that faith. And yet when he gets to the end of his letter here in verse 24 and 25, he, he can't let go of his original plan, his original desire to write this joyous letter of the common salvation that people experience in Christ Jesus. And that, so that's what he focuses on here in this, what we have in our Bibles in verses 24 and 25. If you have a Bible in front of you, you might notice um, most likely your translation has a header above these and it says that this is a doxology. This is the doxology of Jude. And this word doxology comes from two words in Greek. The word doxe or, or glory and ology or, or coming from logos or word. What a fitting way to describe these two verses. Verses 24 and 25. Because they are words of glory. They're words that inspire worship from God's people because they focus on what God has done, what God has committed to do for his people, as well as what this God that we worship is like. And that's why I think these verses are so important for us this morning. It's because we desperately need these verses. 
We desperately need this doxology, these words of glory to remind us of the majesty of who God is, of what God has done for us. And this is the God that we worship. Each of us is in desperate need for these words of glory that point us back to God's majesty. Whether we realize it or not, we are all worshipers. Every single one of us is a worshiper. You will never not worship. The question isn't whether or not you worship. It is, what do you worship? And one of the reasons why these words are so important for the church is because they expand our vision of the greatness of God, of what God is like. And to borrow the language of C.S. Lewis, he's helping us exchange This simple-minded joy, this simple-minded pleasure, these things that we worship that are like, to use Lewis's language, like playing in the mud and exchange it for a holiday at the sea. Jude's words here help us to replace small words of glory that we might build our lives around, things that aren't necessarily bad, Things like success, like money, like family, like comforts, but they will never actually ever satisfy us. They were never meant to carry the full weight of ultimate meaning in your life and to replace those small words of glory with these beautiful, vast, massive vision of a God who asks much of those who would follow him. And yet the riches of following Jesus are without a doubt worth it. As we dive into this text, you'll notice that Jude's words of glory first focus on what God has done or what God will continue to do for his people, and then after that, he focuses on the wonders of God, of who he is, who he was, and who he ever more will be. And that's going to be kind of our roadmap for this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along in Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, what a, what a marvelous gift that you have given us in the gospel. God, I ask that this morning you would be pleased to remind us of the great joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you that when we are brought into your presence, it will not be a moment of terror, but it will be a moment of unbelievable, unspeakable joy. And God, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you would be present with us. God, that you would come, that you would teach us, and you would expand our vision of your greatness so that we might be a people of worship, not just with our words on Sunday morning, but each and every day, every moment of our lives would be an offering of worship to you. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. Bless this time now in your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, Jude begins by reminding us 
uh, not just of, of what God has done for us, but really what God is, is going to continue to do, what God will do for those who are his. And he reminds us with these three simple words, powerful words. Verse 24 is all about the fact that God is able. I just want you to, again, put yourself in the situation of that early church millennia ago, and can you imagine the balm, the, the, the soothing, healing sense of these words for those that are watching friends and family abandon the gospel, go their separate ways. They're following this false gospel. They're, they're following these false teachers. And Jude, as he's closing his book, finishes with God is able. After spending the bulk of his letter talking about these people who start out as Christians, they look like they are Christians at the beginning, and yet then they stumble and they fall away. They're tripped up by things like greed, as we see in verse 11, rejecting God's authority, like in verse 8, unbelief in verse 5, sinful desires in verse 16, and more and more and more. As they're watching their friends and their family turn their backs on the gospel, how great it would be to read the promise of these words at the beginning of verse 24. God is able to keep you from stumbling. God is able to keep you from stumbling. Anyone who has followed Jesus for any significant amount of time knows that the path of obedience is filled with stumbling with doubts with valleys i consider my own life of following jesus and it's a a life filled with scraped knees because of how often i've fallen down i think my favorite line to describe my life from a song comes from the the hymn come thou fount Where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our lives are lives of stumbling. So to hear these words at the beginning of this verse, that God is able to keep me from stumbling, some of the best words that I could ever hear in my life. As we face this constant pressure from a culture, from an age filled with trials and temptations, I need to hear that God is able to keep me from stumbling. That when I fall, God does not condemn me, but that he will welcome me back. That the Lord has set a guard over the lives of those who are his in order to keep them from stumbling. If you are, if you are discouraged about the trajectory of your life, if you are are concerned that it seems like you haven't made any progress in your spiritual life for a long time now, if you've stalled out in your spiritual growth, if you feel as though you have been abandoned by God, hear these words of promise and assurance from verse 24, that God is able to keep you from stumbling. But Jude doesn't just say that God is able to keep us from stumbling. He also says that God is able to bring us into his glorious presence. That's the second half of this verse. God is able to bring us into his glorious presence. Literally, he says, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
There's a lot to unpack in that phrase. Let's just consider the three parts of, of this statement. To present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. First, Jude says that God is able to present you blameless. That God is able to present you without fault. This concept is rooted all the way back in the Old Testament when it was used to describe the requirements of the offerings for sacrifices that the people would use for the people of Israel. If an animal was going to be offered to God, it had to be without blemish. It had to be without fault. Leviticus tells us the reason why. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. Notice there at the end the reason why, that he may be accepted before the Lord. These faultless offerings are essential for people to be accepted before the Lord, in part because God is teaching the people of Israel that if you're going to enter into his presence, then you also have to be faultless, that you also have to be blameless, and if you have to be blameless in order to enter into the very presence of God, then I don't know about you, but that rules me out. That rules out every single person who has ever lived. Who among us can say, I am completely without fault. I am completely blameless. Who among us hasn't lied? Who among us hasn't said things that we wish that we wouldn't have said and we have to later take back? Who among us hasn't at one time or another been more dedicated to the kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God and it shows in our thoughts or our actions, the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money. No one is blameless. No one is without fault to enter the presence of God except for Jesus. Peter writes this, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, the only blameless one, the only one without fault, gave himself up so that we could enter the presence of God and be like him that we could be blameless. Hebrews, for if the blood of goats, of goats and bulls sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you find yourself weighed down by the guilt of the blame of, of past decisions that you bear, God is able to make you blameless. If you feel like you are hyper aware of all of the ways that you have fallen short, God is able to make you without fault. You see, the astounding thing is, it's not as though God brings us into his presence because he's unaware of our shortcomings. He doesn't even ignore them. He's very aware of our shortcomings and he brings us into his presence in spite 
of them. I'm reminded of the beautiful words of R.C. Sproul, who said this, to know that God knows everything about me and yet loves me is indeed my ultimate consolation. God is able to make you blameless, not because he ignores your shortcomings, your failures, your sin, but because he made a way to overcome it. And once we are blameless, we are able to enter into his glorious presence. I want to I just focus on this idea of, of entering into God's glorious presence because whether we realize it or not, that is one of the reasons why we were created. That was God's plan from the very beginning, that we would enter into his presence, that we would be in the presence of God, that we would dwell with God. We see that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, the fall has already happened, and it tells us that God is walking in the garden. Why is God walking in the garden of Eden? It's because he's looking for Adam and Eve. Why is he looking for Adam and Eve? Well, it's because he wants to spend time with them. That before sin broke creation, God and humanity lived together. They dwelt together. This is an unbelievable thought. You are not meant to live in this broken world. You are not meant to live with a broken relationship with God. You are meant to dwell in the presence of God. In fact, you can trace this thread throughout the entire Bible. The entire Bible is, in essence, a story of God wanting to dwell with people, sin ruining that, and God doing everything, going to unbelievable lengths in order to dwell with people once again. You get to the end of the Bible, the story of the culmination of God's plan, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, and the first words that are proclaimed tell us this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the ending for which you were made, to dwell with God, to be in the presence of God. That's the great end for which God is keeping you. If you look back at the beginning of Jude, Jude verse 1 says that those who are in Christ are kept for Jesus Christ. We've been kept for this moment. That God is able to bring you into his glorious presence. And like a groom who eagerly anticipates his wedding day to his bride, Jesus awaits the day where his Father's plan will at last be fulfilled, will at last be brought to completion, where we can dwell in the presence of God once again. And Jude tells us that this is going to be a day of great joy. A day of great joy. I remember when I was young, eight, nine, uh, I grew up in a Christian home, knew a lot about the Bible, and yet I did not at all want to go to heaven. It's not that I wanted to go to hell, it's just I didn't want to go to heaven. It didn't sound all that fun to me. I didn't understand what it meant to be in God's presence. I remember dreading the idea of heaven as a young boy because I wanted to run. 
I wanted to laugh. I wanted to play. Deep within me, I felt like there was this part of me that had been created for those things, to enjoy good food, to explore the majestic sights of the outdoors. And the thought of existing in this ethereal state without a body before God forever was not at all exciting for this boy who loved to get covered in dirt. And you look at the story of the Bible and begin to realize the longings of young Jordan, they weren't all that far off. That God doesn't just want to save people for this eternal existence as a disembodied spirit. In fact, the Bible tells us that that the story of salvation is incomplete without a restored, perfected, glorified body living in this new creation living in God's presence forever. That you were meant, you were made to to taste the fresh, cool air of Minnesota forests in the fall for all eternity. That you were made to go fishing in Montana with Jesus in cool summer mornings. That you were made to to drink in the beauty of the Black Hills or the Grand Canyon or the the grasslands of the, the Central Plains alongside the one who carved those mountains and the one who painted those plains for all of eternity. And if you're not into nature, that's okay. Because the new creation will be filled with creatives and artists who will continue to spend all of eternity creating masterpieces. Johann Bach is famous for all of, uh, all of his writings, all of his, his compositions. He wrote SDG on each and every one of them, Sola de Gloria, which really just, just means that for the glory of God alone. And can you imagine all of eternity him continuing to write piece after piece, S-D-G, for the glory of God alone. In C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, he, one of his characters perfectly describes this feeling, this longing that I, I think each and every one of us will feel on that day because we, we are longing today for the place that we were meant to live. It says this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old creation is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And I would add that those moments of bliss, of sheer contentment in this life, when we experience those, those are, those are just signposts pointing us to the greatest source of joy that we will ever experience in our lives when we are presented blameless before his glorious presence. And yes, it will be with great joy. At the center of it all is the source of our highest good, the source of our highest joy, the one for whom we were created, God himself. Westminster Catechism puts this unbelievable future in perspective for us with its first question. It sums up the teaching of the Bible about why we were made. And it says, what is the chief end of man? And the response is simply, the chief end of man is to glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. God created you to enjoy him forever. You were created to dwell in his presence. And you know what? That's not some idealistic plan, desire of God that he left behind long ago because he found it, it was just, just impossible. He said, well, we're just going to scrap that and we're going to move on to plan B. No, God is able. God is able And even though we were once laden with sin, Jesus has made a way for us to once more enter into his presence. It would be easy for us to interpret these words, God is able, not as a guarantee of what God is going to do for those who are his, but rather as this theoretical exercise, this idea that, you know what, God is he might be able to do that in theory, but there's no way that he's actually ever going to do that. There's no guarantee that he's going to keep what he said. He's, well, he's just able to. He didn't say he's going to. But the totality of Scripture says that God isn't just able, that when we see these words, God is able, we, we really should just read them as God is willing. God will. God is very willing to do these things for his people. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a guarantee of the future. Philippians chapter 1 reminds us that we can be confident that God is going to finish the work that he has started in us at conversion. Last Easter, we looked at one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, two of the most beautiful words, Romans chapter 5, verse 10, these words, much more. Romans 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That verse is, is earth-shattering to me. Paul first mentions the part of salvation that we're likely more familiar with. He points out that reconciliation with God comes through the death of Jesus on the cross, but then notice what he says after that. He says that while we were reconciled through the cross, much more shall we be saved by his life. In other words, to put it another way, Paul is arguing that in the resurrection, in the life of Jesus, that is an even greater source of encouragement and assurance and confidence that God is going to finish the work that he started in you. That because Jesus rose from the dead, and is exalted and ascended into heaven, you can be completely, utterly, 100% confident that God's plan for you is not finished. When we say God is able, it's not this theoretical exercise. We're not just asking this question about, well, is God powerful enough to do this? It's a statement that God will keep you from stumbling. That God will bring you into his presence where you will experience great joy. And I don't know about you, but can you think of greater words of glory than those? 
But Jude's not done. In verse 24, he focuses on the fact that God is able, and then you look at verse 25, and he focuses on the fact that God is worthy. That God is worthy. Look at verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You'll notice that the only verb in this verse is the word be. And it's the answer to what is God worthy of? Well, he's, he's worthy of worship, right? This word be doesn't mean that these things aren't true of God if we don't worship him. No, God is, is no less majestic. He's no less glorious. He's no less in charge of the cosmos just because we fail to worship him. But when we do worship him, we ascribe to him what is actually true of him already. It's like we're shining a flashlight in the midst of darkness to light up this truth for a broken world. I just want us to consider briefly three parts of Jude's doxology, his words of glory, of why God is worthy of our worship. First, he says that God is Savior. God is Savior. Notice that he doesn't describe Jesus as Savior. He describes God the Father as Savior. He says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ. So there's a difference here. It's easy for us to think of Jesus as Savior, and after all, isn't that the message of the gospel, that Jesus came for us, he, he offered himself up for people like us to make us blameless so that we could enter into the presence of God? And Jude's not denying that, but he wants us to see clearly in the story of salvation, this started a whole lot longer in the past that, than Jesus being born in the manger. That this was God the Father's plan from the very beginning to rescue people. Ephesians, Paul tells us this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's all about God the Father and how he saves people. God, the Father, is God the Savior because of his unstoppable plan to rescue his creation. The Apostle John, he puts it a different way. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And notice what he says next. And sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his Son. Son. God is the Father because He sent His Son. Jesus goes willingly, but He goes because His Father sent Him. That this plan of salvation is God the Father's plan from the very beginning. God is worthy of our worship because God the Father is our Savior. Second, Notice the slew of attributes that is used to describe God the Father here in verse 25. Glory, majesty, dominion, authority. Judah's reminding us that God is king. 
that God is king. We've seen time and time again this underlying current in the book of Jude that there's this group of people who say, God has no right to tell me what to do. And Jude's response is, well, actually he does. That's the message of Jude, that God is a king. He reigns over the cosmos with, with absolute power, although it's benevolent power, it is absolute And all glory and majesty are his because he is the king. The entire creation, the entire universe, the spiritual realm, all of those are under his dominion. The heavenly places, the spiritual realm. You will never find a place where God himself does not reign. He is the highest authority. You will never find someone who can overrule God. His word is law because no one can challenge his rule. And God is worthy of worship because God is the king. And last Jude says that God is the beginning and the end. He always was, he is, and he always will be. By his very nature, he is worthy of worship because he's the uncreated one. He's worthy of worship because he's God from beginning to end. Over these past two months in the book of Jude, we've been reminded time and time again of this charge to preserve the truth that has been entrusted to us. It's a high calling. It's it's a hard calling. It takes wisdom. It takes courage. It takes resolve in the midst of temptation, in the midst of, of this desire or this ease of of falling or drifting away how fitting is it then that Jude after telling us to preserve the truth assures us with these words not with a final call to preserve the truth but assurance that God will preserve us that God is able, and that God is worthy. That God is able to keep you from stumbling. That God is able to bring you into his presence by making you blameless, and that will be a place of great joy for all of God's people. God alone is is worthy of worship. God is our Savior. God is our King. God is the beginning and the end. And and really, the the message of these two verses, the message of this text is really just just a question. A rhetorical one, but it's a question. How could we not worship the God who will preserve his people to the very end? How could you not worship this God who preserves his people to the very end? This passage is is meant to make us stop. It's it's meant to make us consider, to open up our eyes to the greatness of of who God is, what God has done, and and ask ourselves, how could we not worship this God who's going to preserve his people until the very end? This this past week, I was uh, was playing hide-and-seek with my kids. I dominated. They're not very good. They even cheated a little, but... We were playing hide-and-seek, and at one moment, I, I went and hid in the closet in our mudroom. It has bifold doors, 
and they were slightly open. And so the way that they were open, there was just this little crack that I could see through. And of course, they come running in. And they're talking, where's dad? I'm looking around. I'm right here, guys. I'm right here. We're talking about, well, maybe he went into the garage, or maybe he went somewhere else. And, and, and I can just see this sliver of them having this conversation, right? I can move this way, and I can see a little bit more. Move this way, I can see a little bit more. But, but I'm not catching all that much of a picture of this conversation. If I wanted to see more, I'd have to expand that door. I'd have, well, I'd actually have to rip it off its hinges. I don't want to do that. And I think that in a way, this passage is doing something similar. That, that we have this picture, this sliver of comprehension of, of who God is, the, the glory of God, what, not only what God has done for us, but also what God will do for us. And it's not wrong. It's not going to lead us astray. It's not even misleading. It's not incorrect. It's just too small. It's too incomplete. And verses like this, they just crack that door open a little bit more so that we can see just a little bit bigger of a vision of who God really is. The passages like this in the Bible, they're meant to expand our wonder of who God is and give us assurance that because of who God is, what God will do for his people. As we close, I just, I just want to return to a, a phrase that I, I jumped over in verse 25. In verse 25, notice I jumped over through Jesus Christ our Lord. And really, that's the heartbeat of Jude. That all of this is possible through Jesus Christ our Lord. Without Jesus, we cannot say God is going to keep us from stumbling. Without Jesus, we cannot say that God will present us blameless in his presence. It won't be a moment of great joy, that's for sure. It's only because of Jesus at work that we are able to enter into his presence. And when we experience great joy at who God is and not great terror because of those things. These words through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are the true words of glory. Those are the words that make it possible for us to worship. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to respond with worship. We're going to respond by singing a, couple, with a, singing a song, proclaiming the faith that is ours because of Christ Jesus. But hopefully that's not it. That worship doesn't just stop with the words that we say. But those are just a microcosm of a life of worship. But how, because how could we not worship this God who will present us, who will preserve us until the very end? Would you pray with me? Father, it is such a marvelous gift 
that you are able to keep us from stumbling. That you, the king of the cosmos, that we can also call you savior. God, we thank you that we are able to enter your presence and that we can experience great joy because we are blameless because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, God. Help us to live lives of worship, not wasting them on small, trivial, insignificant things, but to live lives of worship that are honoring to the King of creation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.